and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropeneurs of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to and showcase planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Jerry Pollack. Jerry is a scientist recognized worldwide as a dynamic speaker and author whose passion lies in plumbing the depths of natural truths. He received the first Emoto Peace Prize and is a recipient of the University of Washington's highest honor, the Annual Faculty Lecturer Award. He is founding editor-in-chief of the research journal Water and director of the Institute for Venture Science. The Institute for Venture Science was founded in 2013, and we will talk more about that in our interview. He also published two books, that in, multiple books, and, and two of them include The Fourth Phase of Water, and cells, gels, and the engines of life. So I'm really excited for a conversation about water, the intelligence of water, maybe the memory of water, and beyond that. So welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you, Yulin. I'm uh, delighted, absolutely delighted uh, to be with you. And nice to interrupt the social distancing and isolation. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so often it's, you know, where to begin, there's a whole body of work that you've already contributed to the world and that, you know, people can find from TED Talks to books to cutting edge uh, science. But maybe let's backtrack just to, you know, the, the, the commonly understandable science around water. People think water has three phases, that's liquid, gas, and solid, right? And you wrote a book that's called the fourth phase of water. Maybe you can start from there, kind of guiding us into the topic of, of water, living water, and, and what we don't know about water as humans. Um, okay, big, big topic. So, um, yeah, the, the, uh, we all learned that water, that water has three phases, as you said, liquid, uh, solid, and, and vapor. But, you know, um, more than a hundred years ago, um, scientists were somewhat skeptical. And the skepticism arose because with the known three phases of water, you simply couldn't explain everything. Even then, even more than a hundred years ago, there were many anomalies uh, of water. So what are anomalies? Anomalies are observations that don't fit the theory. So they're often classified as anomalies as though the theory must be right and anything that doesn't fit the theory we call anomaly and we kind of sweep it under the rug forget about it, leaving it for future generations to figure out how how it might fit into the scheme of things and you know the implicit assumption is that the three phases everybody knows there are three phases must be correct it's impossible that there could be another phase but but even a hundred years ago, there were too many anomalies. Um, now there are, if you look at uh, Martin Chaplin's website, he lists something like 65 anomalies. Some of them are rather technical, but this is kind of interesting because it would be that there are three phases of water and we know everything about those three phases. And yet there are more than 50 observations that don't fit. So, so you have, um, you have a choice then, either you stick with the three phases and accept the fact that there are just many anomalies and hopefully one day 
those anomalies will get resolved. Uh, we keep sweeping more under the carpet. Or take the bull by the horns and say, well, wait a second. Maybe that idea of three phases is not correct. Um, and um, I happen to be a guy who doesn't really like anomalies. <laughs> uh, I think that if you, if you have a, a theory, an idea, you know, uh, it ought to fit almost everything. Uh, maybe not everything. Sometimes the observations themselves are not valid, but it should go a long way. And, and so I, I became interested in water. We were studying for many, many years studying contraction of muscle at the molecular level. And, you know, it struck me it struck me that nobody, nobody was considering a possible role of water in the contraction of muscles, yet muscles, like all the other organs in your body, they're mostly water, something like two water. You know, and if, if, you, convert, if you convert that there is water by volume in, into the contraction of water molecules, in other words, you line up all the molecules inside the muscle or any organ and start counting, you'll find that more than 99 out of 100 molecules are water molecules because the molecules are so small that to make up the two thirds volume, you need a lot of molecules. So, so the people- That's in our bodies. I'm sorry. 99% of the molecules of our body are- Of our body. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, of either any organ in your body or your whole body. Some organs by volume are, are something like 90% water and some, some lower, it varies. But basically we're mostly water. And, yeah. and as you say, the count in one body is something like 99 out of 100 molecules. Now. It seems to me to border on atoms to think that 99 out of 100 molecules inside of our body don't do anything. Sit there. Um, they bathe. They bathe the more important molecules of life, and this is what the text basically says. That um, you know, it'll introduce, in, uh, for example, a cellology textbook. It will introduce water at the beginning, after one, and then forget about it for the rest. And so in the case of, of muscles, interested me, I kind of became a little skeptical that um, if you look in the textbook, you want to find out how muscles work, according to the latest theory, you'll find lots of proteins doing all kinds of things. But these proteins are apparently occupied uh, uh, vacuum, no water is present. The water is eliminated as 99 out of 100 miles don't do anything, so we just forget about them. That struck me as odd, struck me as weird. And, and there had been a postdoc in my, in my lab many years before that who was arguing that water ought to be central to everything that happens. I was, I was, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I was fortunate to be invited to, to a meeting in Hungary uh, to commemorate, <coughs> excuse me, it's COVID-19, nothing serious, uh, <laughs> hope not, uh, 
to, to commemorate the work of a guy named Ernst, who, who was a, a, a well-known um, biophysicist in Hungary, whose, whose ideas differ from the mainstream ideas. And he had two areas of research. One was water and the other was muscle. <laughs> so I was invited to represent the muscle contingent and um, my uh, ideas and differed from the ideas of the mainstream and so did Ernst's ideas. I was a natural candidate to make a presentation. I met the water people headed by Gilbert Ling. Gilbert Ling just passed a few months ago. He didn't quite reach his 100th birthday, sadly. A major contributor to science. Um, and he argued that something about the water in biology is different from liquid water. He didn't call it another phase of water, but essentially that's what it was. Inside your cells, the water molecules are not like water in a glass. So if you take uh, my cup of tea here, the water molecules are bouncing around at um, a fierce number of times each second or even each femtosecond, and they're all randomly disposed. He said, no, no, it's not like that inside the cell and even outside the cell in, in biology, the water molecules are lined up like soldiers at attention. See, and this was, uh, this was an idea um, that, as I said, he didn't call it a different phase of water, but, but uh, it was different from ordinary liquid water. He had a lot of evidence to support his point of view, and um, many people at this conference, uh, well, they were invited because they had, ev had evidence to support his point of view. And I was turned on. I was immediately turned on. I'd heard of Gilbert Ling before. I'd heard that he was some kind of crackpot with some weird idea, but I really delved into it. So I, I read one of his books, and his books, uh, at that, by that time, he had three or four, maybe even five books. I can't remember. Before he passed, I think he had seven. And most of the books dealt with the evidence supporting this kind of water. So the idea started more than 100 years ago that there ought to be another kind of water because with three phases, you can't, there, there are too many features of water that go unexplained, you see. And, and I, um, I really bought into to this idea. So I, I gave one of his books to several of my students, postdocs to read, and they all came back to me. They'd never heard of it before with pretty much the same comment. This is really difficult reading, but this guy is onto something that's really important and central for biology. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought too. But my students uh, then assured me that really was the case. And so we plunged in. And how did we plunge in? The first thing is my, you might say, Samaritan kind of attitude. Gilbert Ling's writings are understandable easily by the author, but by few people. They're really difficult to penetrate, um, impossible for a layperson, and difficult even for some physical chemists. Um, Gilbert had a habit of writing in a way that satisfied himself, but for other people it was a challenge. So I set myself to a goal. I'm going to 
uh, write about Gilbert Ling's ideas and try to make those ideas accessible to people like you and me. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I put myself in the same category. I don't claim um, any special expertise, or at least I didn't at the time. So I wrote the book and I went a little bit beyond Gilbert Ling. And, um, and the idea was not only uh, that the water models inside the cell were lined up, as he was suggesting, but going beyond that, that, that a transition between the kind of what he called ordered or structured water, uh, the, the transition between the structured and ordinary water was a trigger for almost every major event that happens inside of cells. Very central to the initiation um, of not only the initiation, but participation in the events of those. So uh, examples of muscle contraction, nerve conduction, uh, secretion, mitosis, etc. I went through all of those. Um, and, uh, and, and the response was varied. Uh, Gilbert Ling wrote an email, and it was, uh, if you pardon the expression, a slightly maybe nasty email uh, saying, you know, well, thank you very much, but I don't like the way you've, you've done it. And, and Gilbert copied, um, CC'd many people in the field. And he was a bit angry with me because, well, you might say because he disagreed with a few things that I wrote uh, and also suggested that I hadn't given him enough credit. I thought I had, uh, he thought I didn't. So um, our ways parted a little bit and I, I did my best to recoup our friendship, trying to suggest to him that, hey, we shouldn't be enemies, we're pretty much in the same direction. Okay, so that's history. Then, um, having published this book and, and gotten mixed reviews, some negative, some saying, oh, this is just another extension of Gilbert Ling, and everybody knows that Gilbert Ling is way off base on everything, to, um, a guy from Harvard who said, and I quote, uh, this is a 304 page preface to the future of cell biology. That was nice. I like that. <laughs> um, that so, yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I felt inspired to follow up on all this stuff. Anyway, that, that's, how, that's how it got going. It's a bit of a, a long story, but basically, the emphasis in my laboratory shifted pretty much 100% trying to figure out how muscles contract at the molecular level to figuring out about water, not only in biology, but even outside of biology. And so we went on to do many experiments and- um, Tell us a little bit about those experiments and maybe like the, you know, the, the takeaway insights that people that are listening can, can kind of um, take into their consciousness and understand that water it might be so much more than these three phases and the memory of water and also the kind of um, you know this 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 electric charge that we can sense that water holds its position like in this famous water bridge uh, experiment right where 
um, water literally forms a bridge between two. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Two let me let me address the bridge first, and then I'll talk about the water. Mm -hmm. You asked me enough questions that we could keep going for a few hours, but <laughs> well, let me yeah. let me start there. And if I go off track, please remind me uh, to tell you uh, the essential features of uh, of the water. Yeah, the water bridge is interesting. This is not our discovery. Um, it, uh, the person who's been doing the most experiments on this is a Dutch guy, Elmar Fuchs. Actually, he's Austrian, but he works in, in Holland right now. And I remember he came to me as a postdoc, uh, not in my laboratory, although we, we discussed it to show me pretty much what he had done. And I was amazed. It, 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 the picture is actually on the, on the um, a homepage of my website only because it looks beautiful, not because we've done experiments or have expertise, but I'll just tell you the experiment because it's really fascinating for those who, yeah. who don't know. Yeah. yeah, so you take two beakers and you fill them with water and you put them so that the lips of the two beakers are touching. Then you immerse two electrodes, one in one beaker, one in the other beaker, and you connect those electrodes to a high voltage power supply. You turn on the power supply and immediately um, you get the water rises up in, uh, at the near edges of each of the two beakers, forming a bridge between the two beakers. And the bridge kind of, you know, uh, you've got one beaker here, it rises up um, and um, it goes horizontally and then down again into the next beaker. So it's a, it's a kind of little bridge, you can walk across it. And that in itself is not, really so surprising but what's surprising is if you move one of the beakers away from the other beaker the bridge sustains itself it's almost straight it has just a little bit of droop and you can move those two beakers up to maybe three or four centimeters from one another and still the bridge persists it looks like um, you know such a robust kind of bridge that persists essentially indefinitely as long as you don't exceed the three mm -hmm. or four centimeters or like whatever. a form of electric charge and memory that we can observe that water well I, I don't know that that in itself uh has memory i'll tell you about memory yeah. in a moment uh, after i tell you about the nature of the fourth phase um but it it, it does look robust that if you had the courage to expose yourself to high voltage you might even be able to walk on that bridge that's how robust it is uh, and Elmar Fuchs has studied many features of that bridge and, and uh, anybody who's interested, rather than looking at our stuff, I would just Google Elmar Fuchs and you can find out um, F-U-C-H-S, Elmar, E-L-M-A-R. I'll make sure to put Elmar's work into uh, yeah, the show notes I, as well, yeah, yeah. You'll find uh, a lot about the bridge and Elmar presents very nicely. So if you look at his presentations, you, you could learn a lot. I think that fourth phase of water that I'll tell you about in a moment is, is um, responsible uh, for the, because ordinary water, you know, liquid, vapor, solid, doesn't explain, doesn't explain uh, this bridge, especially the liquid water, which is what we're ostensibly dealing with. You've never seen liquid water form a strut, a practically horizontal strut between two distant three or four centimeters distant bodies. So something else is going on. And uh, okay, so what, what about the, this fourth phase of water? Well, at first, 
At first we thought um, that Gilbert Ling had exactly the right answer. We, we soon found out that it was not quite right and we had to make some, some, some change. And um, um, so let me get back to, to that for a moment. Simple experiment. We took um, water, particles immersed in the water. The particles we used were microspheres, little tiny spherical particles that are commonly used in chemistry and physics, nothing, nothing special. And we suspended the water, so the water looks a little cloudy. And then we immersed a gel into the water. And what we found looking through the microscope is that right next to the gel, the microspheres evacuated. They just didn't want to be there in that region. And leaving a microsphere-free region. Um, and it extended for, for quite a long distance. Uh, in the first experiments, it was maybe a tenth of a millimeter or so, a little more. And in later experiments, uh, we, we actually see up to almost a millimeter. And in some unusual circumstances, even a meter. Uh, this was, uh, so something was going on there that we didn't quite understand. Um, but we thought maybe it has something to do with the fact that the water molecules are lining up, as Gilbert Ling had suggested. And as they line up, they form a kind of crystal. And the crystal, crystals tend to exclude particles and solutes, just like ice when it forms, you know. You, all the debris is pushed out so the ice can form a pure crystal. Um, we thought it was something like that. But then we did an experiment that said, can't be. And, and that experiment was to stick electrodes into this microsphere-free zone. By the, way, by the way, we called it exclusion zone because mm -hmm. it excludes. It actually excludes almost everything we found later. But in sticking the electrodes in, we found that it was not new. See, water molecules are neutral. And even if you line them up or don't line them up, it's still neutral. But we measured typically negative electrical potential. So we knew that whatever substance there was inside this zone, it had to be negatively charged. And we later found out uh, that the region beyond this exclusion zone, or we now call it fourth phase exclusion zone, is oppositely charged. So the exclusion zone typically is negative and the region beyond is positive. You get a battery. We put electrodes in, <laughs> negative and positive, and we could light a light bulb with that. Wow. Wow. Now, you'd think, if you're thinking, which I know you are, but not everybody likes to think all the time, you can't get something for nothing. So if you're able to light a light bulb from the water, there has to be energy that comes in, right? Otherwise, it's like a so-called perpetual motion machine where out of nothing you get something. And that's one of the, I guess, few scientific principles that I think is pretty firm. You can't get something mm -hmm. for nothing. Um, I tend to be skeptical about so-called foundational principles, but that's a different issue. Um, so anyway, we have a battery. So where does the energy come to fuel this battery? Uh, now, typically, for your cell phone, I have none, by the way, so I don't do it, but this, everybody else on the planet who has a 
smartphone, it runs down, you plug it in, right, to recharge it. So where does the water, you can't plug in the water, where's the water getting its energy? And, and I, I and some of my students were thinking about this for literally a couple of years and we couldn't figure it out. And one day, a student working in the laboratory figured it out. I mean, he wasn't thinking, he just, he just did an experiment that he wasn't supposed to do, <laughs> curiosity. Curiosity, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and he nailed it, you know. Uh, students are, in theory, supposed to follow direction, but um, I like when they deviate. <laughs> Sometimes they find stuff that is very interesting. What did he do? So he had a chamber sitting on the bench, and he noticed next to the chamber was a lamp. You know, just like an ordinary desk lamp, gooseneck desk, desk lamp. And he took the lamp and he shined it on the chamber. Um, and he called me to take a look. And I took a look and I could see that at first there was an exclusion zone sitting next to some kind of surface. We found later that many surfaces, the water next to many surfaces grow these exclusion zones. Um, and he showed me a nice uniform surface, but when he added the light to it, the exclusion zone grew in size, um, uh, right where it's being illuminated, but not where it was not being illuminated. And he removed the lamp and it went back down with a time constant of tens of minutes down to its original size. So, so it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that somehow light was involved. And later in doing, doing formal experiments, we found that the light that was the most effective of all um, was infrared light. Um, now infrared, a lot of people don't really know a lot about infrared light. And, um, you know, infrared is just like visible light, except the wavelength is just a little bit longer than the longest of visible. So it's just beyond red. So, you know, it acts in it pretty much the same as ordinary visible light. It just has a longer wavelength and we can't see it with our mm -hmm. eyes. But that doesn't mean it doesn't doesn't have um, interesting properties and it's full of energy, um, not as much as other wavelengths. But so um, uh, we we tried and we found that infrared light or infrared energy is so powerful in building, not only building the exclusion zone or EZ, but also separating the charges. So it basically is charging the battery and keeps thing. And we, we, we could, uh, in subsequent experiments, we could find that very weak infrared light, a wavelength about three micrometers, very weak light could grow the exclusion zone by a factor of very powerful. Um, so infrared, where does infrared come from? You know, well, most people know that if you turn on the toaster, inside you see those glowing, coils where you feel the heat and you might say oh yeah it's generating heat and infrared energy radiant infrared energy um, but actually it's not restricted to that infrared energy is all over the place so uh, you see the background here uh, behind me if we were to draw all the curtains uh, shut 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 out shut out all the lights here so that neither you nor I could see any, no visible light. If we turned on an infrared camera with a sensor that picked up not the visible light, but infrared light, 
we get a beautiful image of everything you see there. Maybe the image you can see right now. Um, and therefore, you know, it's used as a night light by millions um, uh, because everything is generating infrared. And so you can, because the sensor yeah. picks up. So it's all over the place. In fact, half of the light coming from the sun is infrared light. So what that means is that light from the sun, uh, effectively or originally from the sun, is what is powering the buildup of the fourth phase of water, EZ water, and separating charge. I mean, so, so this is a, you know, a five minute rundown. Um, yeah, to totally. I mean, this is a very deep subject, but so, you know, could we say, I mean, in the most simplified way that lake and lake water and ocean waters kind of act like solar panels almost. They get charged up by the sun and then they hold and have a memory of that charge and that electric current. In that sense, yes, uh, memory. They, they will build up uh, and, and the buildup of this, of this kind of water um, can occur in all kinds of of water. So typically, uh, in order to get, um, you, you have some kind of substance inside the water. It could also be the wall of a container because what happens is the water meets that solid surface. And first, the first layer undergoes a, a, a change and then the second layer and the third, and it just keeps building many, many years. And, and we found, uh, maybe this is beyond, uh, uh, just say it because I think it's important. We, we found that the structure of this is actually hexagonal sheets, honeycomb sheets, and stack upon one another. It's not, as Gilbert Ling uh, thought, a simple lineup of molecules, because if you line up neutral water molecules, you can line them up from here and it will still be neutral. But mm -hmm. the experiment said, that they should be negatively charged. So we were able to identify the simplest, based on many experiments, the simplest structure that could explain that. That's what I said is uh, these sheets. In terms of memory, um, yeah, this is a um, slightly maybe one step beyond structure because, um, you know, memory, uh, if, if, you, uh, if you think about your computer, you know, and um, um, your thumb drive, for example. So it's a memory built of typically silicon. Um, and the atoms are all lined up in three dimensions at, at regularly disposed points. It's like a three-dimensional point lattice. And each one of those atoms uh, can, can occupy two, two different states, what we call zero or one. So something about those atoms changes. And, and frankly, from trying to read the literature and understand it, I, I think the people who have designed and built it don't quite understand exactly themselves how it really works. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in, some way, in some way, the atoms have two different states. So if you, if you now think about easy water and the structure that we've proposed, remember, uh, uh, stacked sheets, sheet being a hexagon, the hexagon consisting of oxygens and hydrogens with the oxygens at the vertices. So if you, if you, if you think about that and ask the question, is there any possibility uh, that this kind of 
semi-solid, semi-liquid, liquid crystalline arrangement could support information. If you compare it now to the computer memory, in order to store to to uh, to store information, there ought to be some regular arrangement of the atoms, and one of the two atoms, either oxygen or hydrogen, would need to be able to take on two different states. So the question, first question is, is that possible? And the, the answer is yes, wow. And the wow comes mm -hmm. because the oxygens can take on not just two states, like a zero and a one, but actually five different um, oxidation states. So we, we typically refer to that as valence and typically minus two is, uh, is the well-known valence of oxygen. But look at any standard chemistry book and you'll find that oxygen is quite versatile. It can be minus two, can also be minus one, zero, plus one, plus two. So instead of having two different states, you've got five different states. So, so in other words, in theory, this E fourth phase water, in theory, has the capability not only storing information with these oxygens taking, taking on one of five different states, but the information density is, I think we calculated sometimes, something like, like um, uh, 100 million times that of silicon. Mm -hmm. because of this versatility. So that's the theory. Yeah. And your question maybe of more interest to the audience is, well, you know, this is only theory. Is there, is there any evidence that, <laughs> that water can actually store information, take on information, uh, keep it, maybe even transmit information? And the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, and a longer answer is I can tell you two or three uh, experiments that uh, have demonstrated this. Yeah, yeah, please do. Okay. Well, and I know, you know, for, for in-depth exploration, everybody can pick up your books and, and do their own research and read. Yeah, I, that's I, always possible. But this topic is so deep that I think it's worth to explore a little bit, hear you elaborate on it. And then as you just suggested, like, let's hear some real life cases. And then also like maybe, um, and I'm already anticipating the next question, but maybe like, what are some of the pragmatic ways that this could turn into yeah, technology or ways that really impact the everyday life of, of people listening? Which, which one do you want first? <laughs> well, let's, let's maybe first hear about some of the, the proof where this theory turned into reality. In okay, the, okay, the so, uh, so I, the, the, maybe the most famous one, uh, is uh, Jacques Benveniste. Uh, you know about it, but your, your listeners might, or viewers might be unaware. Uh, Jacques Benveniste, who was my friend, uh, um, he passed about 10 years ago. Um, he was a famous immunologist in France, very high level scientist, respected by many people, and having access to all the famous scientists all over the world, especially in France and whatever, his laboratory was, was full of something like 50 people in Paris, very major operation in the field of immunology. And he was doing an experiment um, in, in which 
he would take uh, uh, a certain kind of cells, uh, I can't remember uh, which cells that will come to me in a moment, and the cells would secrete, you know, squirt out histamine. Um, and the stimulus was some uh, suspension of antibodies. So he poured the antibodies over these cells and the cells would release histamine. And that was a field of study. Well, some guy came to his laboratory and said, you know, I can take, I can take those antibodies and dilute them and dilute them and dilute them the same way as homeopaths do, uh, dilute, shake, so-called succussion, dilute again and keep doing that. And I can do it to the point or way beyond the point where at least statistically, there should be no antibodies left, only water, because I've diluted it so much that, you know, that can't be any antibodies. And I get the same result. And, and Jacques said to him, impossible, I don't believe it. However, an intellectual interested in truth in science and having a big laboratory, take that corner in the lab, is empty, go do your experiments and show me. Um, pretty soon the entire laboratory was hovering over that corner in the laboratory because it looked as though just water that had been exposed to the antibodies somehow had the information to yield a highly specific response um, to secrete, secrete these antibodies. Well, you know, he took a lot of shit, if you would pardon the expression, from this. So um, he, uh, he followed up and the whole laboratory got interested. They did follow-up experiments. They submitted their paper to Nature, you know, a premier journal, yeah. if not the premier journal. And Sir John Maddox, the distinguished <coughs> excuse me, editor, wrote back saying, no way. He said, if you're right, everybody else is wrong. And I can't imagine that everybody else is wrong. Therefore, I'm sending back the manuscript. We're not sending it out to review. Sorry about that. Um, so, um, you know, not, not being a violet, <laughs> um, he decided because he knew it was true because he could do it all the time uh, or the people in his lab could do it. He decided uh, the way to get this thing done is to ask his friends from different countries to repeat exactly the same protocols and see if they got the same result. They did. They rewrote the paper and submitted it as a, a collective submission. Because, I mean, after all, pretty interesting. Water looks like it has memory. Uh, and he called it the memory of water. Well, that didn't work uh, because Maddox was not ready to be challenged on uh, the late John Maddox. In fact, there were a few fields in, in which, in which he, uh, he challenged some unusual results. Um, and um, there were some interesting pieces that uh, appeared when he, when he died. But anyway, that's it's not, not it's another topic, but it also kind of sets us up for another question. And maybe we'll pause the, the technology question and come back to that later, because I'm really curious. I know there's a lot of um, people can find a lot of your, your opinions uh, on that online as well. But, you know, I like to ask the question, what does it truly take for humanity to learn from its past mistakes? And in, in the context of the scientific establishment, I think we've seen for centuries now that um, the 
quote unquote, quotation marks here, the scientific establishment likes to hold on to its uh, perspectives and its, 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 um, its findings, even when it gets challenged by the next level of findings, right? So when Galileo Galileo was alive, um, he, he had a really hard time, even though now we, we absolutely uh, know that the, the earth is a sphere or, or like a, a globe, right? And, um, and many, 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 many um, discoveries like that. So the question to you, like, do you think there is like a, a breaking point where humanity has had enough of these moments and will actually like learn from these past mistakes of discrediting work just because it, it, it endangers uh, the current establishment of power? To respond to your question, I, I, uh, I think that um, something needs to be done um, to change it. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, is um, I mean, the structure of the scientific enterprise needs to be changed. Why do I say that? I say that because the Galileo study, like the many other stories, similar stories that followed, including Jacques Bendenist, I never quite got to it, but in my fourth phase book, I described the situation. It's almost comical uh, what happened to him, except that it was tragic because he died not too many years afterward. Mm -hmm. His career was ruined. Uh, and, um, uh, but it has to do with human nature. So, so let me give you an example. Um, suppose you're talking about the round earth. So Julian, um, suppose, suppose living, um, well, let's take it right now. Suppose all your colleagues thought that the earth was flat. You know, it's pretty obvious that it's flat. I can look out my window, it looks flat to me. What's this idea about round earth? You know, it looks flat. Um, and, and, and of course, the, the idea was uh, a prevailing idea because it kind of made sense to have a flat, a flat earth. You know, but you go to the U.S. National Science Foundation and you put in a proposal because you idea that maybe the earth is not flat, maybe it's round, okay? You even think that? Well, you think that. Because things, first of all, you happen to have seen some satellite photos and it kind of looks like a sphere. It doesn't look like flat earth. And second, you live in Vancouver and Victoria. Um, you took off uh, from Vancouver airport and you went around, um, you went west and you landed in Tokyo and, um, and then you went on to Moscow and then London. Um, and then Washington, D.C., you know, back to Vancouver. And if the earth is flat, you know, you're looking out the window very conscientiously looking for the edge of the earth, right? Because you got back to where you came. And if the earth is flat, there must be some, some it must be a cube of some sort. And you could never, despite being conscientious and depriving your sleep, you're always looking to find it, never. National Science Foundation and some so-called data. It's like the Earth is not flat. Every piece of evidence so far convinces me that it's round. Please give me some money so I can do some more formal stuff and 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 find out whether the Earth is really flat, as everybody seems to think, or whether it's really a sphere. Now, you'd expect or a naive person would expect, this sounds astounding. It sounds 
well, revolutionary, but at the same time, it kind of makes sense because it fits with all of the data that you see. But do you think you're going to get money from the National Science Foundation to study it? Almost certainly no. And why is that? Okay, I'll tell you why. Uh, it could be the National Institute of Health. It could be the Canadian. I know there are some various funding organizations that I've dealt with. And the reason has to do with people, you see. So the gatekeeper gets your application. You put a lot of time into preparing a, a, a clear and convincing one. Um, and it's by a few people in the group. There may be a group of 10 people on, on the committee. Um, and it's up to a couple of them to present your story and, and maybe defend it. But the who well, the gatekeeper to do his job properly, uh, the gatekeeper is going to recruit. Um, shall I stop this phone? Okay, so you're um, because of the uh, in call. Um, the gatekeeper is going to, uh, since this is a really important topic is going to hire the experts or recruit the experts in the field to view your application to find out whether it really ends or whether it's flaky. Um, and these people now are, are the people who are most prominent in, in, in the conventionally, in the conventional field. They're the most prominent people at the New York Times want to find out the latest on the bumps of the flatter. These are the people that connect with. Do you think that they're going to be happy to let you, a revolutionary, uh, pursue your theory, which might actually <laughs> completely overturn Sounds the position unlikely, yeah. in scientific <laughs> society? No way. And my guess is if you were on the committee, um, or if I were on the committee, maybe, I, we, we might feel the same way. It's just human nature to protect our own interests. And inimical to, to the progress of science, right? Because you can't let, it's like revolutionaries uh, going up to Louis the 16th, was it? And saying, hey, you know, we have a few, we have a few things to say about how, how matters are, are progressing. You know, we listen to us. There's not so much interest in listening to revolutionary to challenge the very position. So, so the scientific system now is around these funding organizations. You can't do very much without money. You can't hire people to help you with the research. You can't supplies. You know, you can't do anything. So there might have, and it's human nature if you're on the committee to look at radical ideas with huge skepticism, because if they're successful, you're in trouble, you see. So human nature can express revolutionary ideas, whether it's um, China, Russia, or US, or wherever, it's just human nature. So you gotta get around human nature in order to change the system, because right now, in order to in order to be successful in the system, you have to toe the line. Of course, you've got to do something that's a little bit different, but it can't be mm -hmm. 
it can't be revolutionary. That's too too different. And if you, uh, most every scientist knows that if you revolutionary, I keep it to yourself because only won't you get funded if you apply pursue this idea, but you'll get a reputation as being a lunatic. And uh, if someone stands, if you're around the idea, uh, and someone stands, said, "Oh, Julian, he's he's crackpot. Don't pay any attention." What can you do? Can you stand up and say, oh, I'm not a cop. You know, who's going to listen to you? You see, so, so the whole system needs change if science is to progress. And that's the reason why, why we founded the organization you mentioned, the Institute for Venture Science. So what's the Institute for Venture high Science? Risk, high return, right? Uh, kind of well, I, I wouldn't even, some people call it high risk, but, but actually I would say low risk return not high risk because mm-hmm. the high risk the high risk is the round earth uh is well whichever earth you it, it is the entrenched idea because or the muscle contraction theory uh, or the the water idea let's take that one so if you've got 65 anomalous uh uh 65 instances observations that don't fit the theory seems to me pretty high risk to continue to play with um, that's high risk because you know you might go from 65 to six anomalies something else that doesn't fit the theory but it's unlikely that your pursuit about all of those 60 anomalies, you see so i wouldn't say high risk um, um i uh, uh, i mean i think pursuing the conventional idea is the really higher risk the revelatory idea, in order to prove it, it has to argue rather convincingly that at least there's something that may be there. And I argue that's lower. But that's a different, uh, a different issue. But we want, what we want to do is to give these revolutionary ideas a chance. Right, like so, the courageous ideas that could facilitate breakthrough science that as you explained so eloquently, like usually get kind of blocked in themselves, now have a place to, to be pursued. Exactly. Those are the ones we're looking for. So the way it works is we ask for pre-proposals, uh, proposals, two pages, tell us your idea and tell us why you think it's cogent. And they get reviewed and, and we pick out, we have, Open-minded reviewers who understand that we're looking for revolutionary science, and we ask them to pick out the ones that are really important. If 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 the proposal is validated, and then we ask them, "How do you think from this short pre-proposal? Um, it might be that it will turn out to be a, a successful endeavor." And from that, we pick out. We picked out in the first round. We picked out the top was thirteen or fourteen. And we ask for proposals, and we boil it down to five. So we have five, we have five proposals that are now waiting. We're looking for private funding, and you know we would certainly welcome anybody who who has best in this thing would like to give back to society if they've successful in their in their Beautiful. life in a meaningful way. That's, that's a great call to action also to everyone listening that, that might be on to some kind of breakthrough science like this. Let us, let us um, find the way back into this uh, previous question around uh, applicable technologies or maybe 
technologies that are still yet to, to really find their way in our society that are based on this fourth phase of water and, and the discoveries that were made. And even just like a, a, a little hint towards um, what's pragmatically possible. Sure. Um, okay. So we formed a, a startup uh, company. I, I, I'm not exactly an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a scientist and it's uh, what moved me. One of my students convinced me that some of, some of the developments from the lab are, you know, so interesting and so practical that we really need to do something. And so it's called um, Fourth Phase Incorporated. And I'm trying to pursue some, uh, some of these uh, developments. Of course, it's always a challenge to get proper investment. So, and proper investment is needed for proper development. Um, it's, it's easy, I don't know how easy to find something in the laboratory, but to move it from a laboratory observation to something practical is a real challenge that people who do startups know about this. It's called, called the valley of death. <laughs> and you got to cross, move across the valley of death to, yeah. to get to. And, and so we've been toying with a few different uh, technologies that I, I think could have enormous practical value. So I start, I start with the one I mentioned before, which is on our back burner at the time, but really important, getting energy, electrical energy uh, from water. So... Um, the EZ region is negatively charged, the region beyond is positively charged. Two electrodes, one a negative, one a positive, and you get electrical energy out of that. Question is, um, and we've demonstrated in the laboratory, the question is, can you build it into something practical? Possibly, it's on our agenda. It would be amazing because right now, solar cells are dependent on certain minerals that are then depleted from the earth. We don't want to ruin the earth. This is just water and light, basically, completely renewable. So this is exciting. Next one, easy water is free, largely free. We don't know if it's free of everything. Uh, we've tested a lot of substances and it excludes almost everything. Uh, we can't say everything because we haven't tested everything. Uh, but if you can collect this water, easy water, it should be free of the kinds of contaminants that are wreaking havoc with our health. Um, so for example, glyphosates are one, um, microplastics another, you, you know them and I think many people, the aluminum that um, comes down from, from chemtrails is uh, uh, another one of those. So, you know, people who have studied the waters, they're completely polluted. You want to get rid of that. And so a good way to do that right now is, is through osmosis. The amount of energy that's required to do this is affordable by um, the uh, Saudi rate and such, but it's very expensive to produce that kind of energy. Well, and it would in theory, anyway, more we can pollution, do it. right? I'm sorry? I'm saying, and in the traditional way of creating energy, it would also create more pollution. Oh, that's true. More, yeah. more indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Yeah. So easy water, you know, we, it builds from the energy of the sun. It's, it's free. You might say the energy is free if we can just exploit it in the right way. So if you can get the easy water, uh, it should be free of uh, pharmaceuticals and 
all the, excuse me, shit that is right now polluting our, our waters. So, um, so we actually immersed ourselves in, into that and we, we soon realized the technical um, obstacles to, to making it work. We could increase the throughput enormously relative to what we could achieve and, and we could separate uh, substances. But there are still some technical limitations uh, that we have not yet been able to solve. We need, we need more uh, technology, and for that we need more money, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, next. We also separate salt. And we just are doing that, but uh, again, you know, limited by uh, technology. And we, we're pretty confident that, like all the other pollutants in the water, separated out of the water. And uh, we're pursuing that because of sort of, you know, obvious reasons. We're running out of water. Um, if you get water from the ocean in a simple way, it solves the problem. And we're working on it. Uh, so that's, an, an, that's another. And, yeah. and the final one, I'll just give you more, is, is really good water drinking uh, water. And we have reason to think that healthful water contains structure or contains EZ, as, which is what we would call a fourth phase. Um, and we're working to produce some of that because we are convinced that this is going to be good for health. So that's what yeah, the answer is yes. We're quite aware that many of these discoveries um, uh, can be uh, really helpful in the future for humanity, for solving many of humanity's problems. And as I said, it's by investment. But we're really yeah. eager to do this. And I'm, and I'm sure we'll, we'll continue a conversation about these technologies on Green Planet, Blue Planet podcasts. And, and I just sure. recently had Jeremy Pfeiffer on. And there will be more of these kind of conversations um, about technology and water. I have a final question for you today, Jerry. And that's, that's my Earth vision question. I just would love to hear a little bit of the dream for this planet and for humanity that, that you see, that you feel, that you sense. Um, in the context of seven generations going forward, whatever, um, it doesn't even need to be pragmatic. It can just be like an actual vision or a dream. Um, what, do you, what, do, what do you feel inspired to share on that question? Uh, well, uh, I, I would like to see uh, <clears throat> humanity paying uh, much more attention to our environment. Uh, you know, serious people who into what we're doing to the earth are pretty warm in their in their conclusion that we're destroying the earth, and and we we don't know how much longer humanity can exist um, without extinction in the direction we're going. So, you know, for survival, we we, we need to completely our attitude toward the earth. And uh, so we're fighting, uh, regrettably, you know, we're fighting forces. They're mostly economic forces that are um, tending to undo uh, what we somehow began doing in the past 10, 20, 30 years, seriously. Um, and, and the forces uh, of, of, of those um, bodies that are for profit, you know, they have the power right now, um, the, power, the power of exploiting their vision, and their vision is mostly to make money. Um, 
And so I, I, I can, uh, if, if we're to survive, I think it, it's, it's not only, um, I mean, it's obligatory for us to use that, that vision. How to do it is not so clear. It, it, it might be that science may grow. I've, um, uh, political force stage might be uh, as important or uh, more important. Uh, we, we need some inspirational leaders um, to convince the world that we need to do something differently because seven generations from now, we want humanity to flourish. We, we, we don't want we don't want to see diseases increasing and lifespan shortening and people's that's not the way to live. So that's what I see. It's probably Beautiful. much different from what many of the people you've interviewed are espousing, but you know, how to do it, how to, how to get to that transition point, that's a serious issue. And I don't have the answers for that. Partly because and I, I think it's not always about having having the answers. I already really uh, enjoyed your your reply to the question. I think it's realizing and understanding that so so many of us have this similar similar notion that we actually want a future that allows for flourishing, life affirming conditions on this planet. And so there's lots of work to do, lots of cleanup to do, and a new way to lead. And Please. how to do this, we'll have to figure it out one step at a time. For today, maybe somebody like you could figure yeah. it out. <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll play a role in it. I'm definitely determined and committed to continue to walk this way forward. And sometimes it, um, I can share this at the end of this episode, sometimes it takes to acknowledge the current ways of doing things and uh, the current leadership, but then to turn away and find a way to make it obsolete because fighting or going against um, is, is, is a very ineffective way, actually. Yep. So, yep. Yep. A new initiative that appeals. Um, that is attractive to people to have them join in. And that's, then pe that's people of the earth are all connected through this, right? Rather than divided by country uh, lines and, and, and et cetera. I feel totally the same. Yeah. Good, good point. Yeah. Thank you so much for today, Jerry. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for, for the in-depth, uh, you know, kind of intro into your work. And if people are, um, fascinated, want to know more. There are, there are a few books that I will also link in the show notes. Thank you for being on Green Planet. You're, you're welcome. Um, and thank you for linking us. The, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Fourth phase uh, is the, the latest one. And I think if um, it's been very popular, and I think there's a lot in there about water. So I hope that people will look toward it. Um, check the check check your reviews on Amazon first. <laughs> okay, so thank you, Julian. Much appreciated, and uh, totally enjoyed uh, um, our interaction. And that's that. Another episode of Green Planet Blue Planet podcast. I hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights, knowledge and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, into your relationships, or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world. Because this is a movement and we're all part of it and we're in this together. We're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win, I win, and the entire planet wins. We're raising consciousness together and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. 
So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self, the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now, with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you and I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments and I'm happy to tell you more. So simply inform yourself and stay connected because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in, connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you and until soon. 